Good morning. I was 21 years old, traveling the world, proving that I could do it all by myself, that I didn't need anyone. I'd always wanted to go to one of the little Greek islands where there's little white buildings and blue sea, and it's beautiful. <clears throat> Caught a ferry to the island of Naxos. I wanted to go to a place where there weren't a lot of tourists. Found a room for a dollar a night. Went out to the water, enjoyed the sea. Children came and talked to me, took me sightseeing. Sabbath came around a couple days later, and I wanted to spend the day in another place. So I took the bus across the island to the second village. As I got there, I saw this beautiful cove with the village here and cliffs over here. And I just thought, I'm going to go out on those cliffs, and I'll spend Sabbath reading my Bible and having a quiet time with God. It took me a while to get out there because it was rocky and stickery. Had a bag on my shoulder with my Bible in it, traveler's checks, passport, the little money that I had. <clears throat> I made it out to the cliffs and I started climbing around. And as I was climbing, my bag slipped off my shoulder. It bounced once on the ledge where I was standing, and then it flipped down into the sea about 40 feet below. And my first thought was, whoa, that could have been me. My second thought was, there's no way I can get down there and get that bag. <clears throat> and I can't go anywhere else in the world without it. I scrambled back through the brush and the rocks around the cove to the village looking for help. I found uh, a teenager who could speak a little English, and I told him what had happened. He went and got his dad. They had a little boat. They got in their boat, and they started chugging across that cove. But it was a windy day, and there were white caps, and they couldn't get over to the cliff. They took me home with them. They fed me. They gave me a room to stay in. And pretty soon, this whole little village knew that there was an American tourist who had lost her belongings in the sea. Everyone came out. I'd walk down those cobbled streets, and people would invite me in their home, and they would offer me food. The young people in the village, friends of the teenager, took me sightseeing. <clears throat> Night came. I looked out again, and the, and the water was still full of white caps. I slept in that beautiful guest room. Woke up first thing in the morning. Crack of dawn, I'm looking out my window, and there's still white caps. All the next day, the villagers entertained me and took care of me. The bus driver came looking for me because he was worried I hadn't come back to his village. He offered me money to get back to Athens. <clears throat> Other people in the village offered me money. The day passed, the white caps remained, and I spent another night in that lovely guest room, which I could never have afforded if I were paying for it. Monday morning dawned, I looked out, it was calm. The boy and his dad and several other people got a little bigger boat. They took me on the boat with them and they chugged across that cove. They got right there near the cliffs and a man dived down into the water and on his first dive, he came up with my bag. Water running out of it. They honked the boat horn all the way back. The people, the whole village was lined up on the wharf, cheering and clapping because they'd found my bag. They took my stuff, they spread it all out on a flat roof to dry. My passport had one visa washed out, my Japanese one, I was done with it. All the other ink was fine. My Bible was like this thick by the time it dried out. I had a letter half written to my parents. I finished writing it and I said, lick this paper, it's salty been in the drink. You know, 
Those people loved helping me. I was out proving my independence and thinking that I didn't need anyone. And God allowed me to be in a position where I desperately needed help. And what he showed me was that those people were blessed to be able to help me. Some of those people wrote to me for five years after that. They loved helping me and they were so blessed. And that was one of my first adult lessons in what God is like and how he takes care of us and what he does for us that's so surprising and unexpected. Life doesn't always happen the way you think it will, does it? It doesn't always do, treat you the way you think it should. And I'm really thankful to be old enough to see some of the things that God does. You know, everyone has a story. You have a story. I have a story. Everyone has a story. And it's our stories that God uses to show what he's like. <clears throat> Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, For we are made a spectacle, or a theater, unto the world, and to angels, and to men. You know, think about the fact that the whole universe is looking at you, and your life, and what God is doing in you. Paul exhorts the Corinthian believers and us in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, You are our epistle written in, in our hearts, known and read of all men, being made manifest that you are the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the tables of the heart, fleshly tables of heart. God's story is written on our hearts, and it's written for the whole universe to see. And it's for the purpose that the universe can see what God is like. Some of the things that I've learned I want to share with you this morning. I've learned that God loves me. I've heard that all my life. I didn't really take it seriously until I was a rebellious teenager. I walked into a week of prayer. I looked up at the ceiling and I said, God, don't think you're going to get me this time. By the end of that week of prayer, God had spoken to my heart and he had impressed my heart with the fact that he liked me. And I wasn't because I was so good. And I couldn't help but like him back. That's what God does. He says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Thoughts, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. He has plans for us and purpose for us. And when things don't look so good, it doesn't mean that they aren't good, right? Because God does things in ways that we can't understand. I learned that it's because God loves me that I have great value. It's not because I'm so good, not because I'm so gorgeous, talented, accomplished. It's because I'm his child. Because I am, he loves me, and his love for me is what gives me value. I remember holding my firstborn son after a long and difficult labor. His head was shaped like a bullet, and he had white stuff all over him, and um, I realized later he really wasn't beautiful, but I couldn't tell at the moment. And that baby in my arms did nothing to win my love, earn my love, or pay back my love. I would have died for him on the spot. I loved him so much, and I realized I'm God's baby. There's nothing beautiful about me, but he loves me, and that's what gives me such value. You know, speaking of ugly, I remember thinking before he was born, having seen a baby that looked kind of un. Uh, homely to me. You know, when my son's born, I'm going to admit if he's not beautiful. It doesn't mean I don't love him. 
But when he was born, I couldn't even tell because love creates beauty. We look at the people we love and they're beautiful to us. And that's what God does in us. His love creates beauty. And he creates, uh, he creates love in us because he said love begets love. And that way that God loves us is what gives us such tremendous value. Another thing that I learned along the way is that God loves us, and in that love, God allows us to suffer. I used to think that if I just cheerfully obeyed God and followed him well, that I wouldn't need the discipline of suffering. And then I remember reading, well, I was kind of drawn to the book of Job. I wanted to understand Job's experience. And then I also came across Hebrews chapter 2, where it says, that it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's chapter 2, verse 10. And then over in chapter 5, it says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And then being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation for all those that obey him. And I just thought, wow, if Jesus suffered to become perfect, to develop that character, how would any of us feel that we could be like Jesus without suffering? And I realize that suffering isn't just discipline. Suffering is entering into Christ and into fellowship with Christ, and it's becoming like Christ, and that we really can't be like that without it. The servant is not better than the master, and if Christ endured that, then the people who love him will also. I knew then that while I had never really suffered in my life, that suffering would be a part of my life. My husband was an artist, but his great passion was soul winning and he loved evangelism. And he began to share Sabbath history in his evangelism and he found people so responsive to it. People had never heard those stories. They had never heard that St. Patrick was a Sabbath keeper. They had never heard that the schism between the Latin and the Orthodox churches was partially over the Sabbath. The Latin church was requiring fasting on Sabbath, and the Orthodox church, Greek church, said, absolutely not. The one day of the week that you can't fast is the Sabbath, because that's a festival day. And so they excommunicated each other's leadership, and there was a big schism. And, you know, those stories were new to people, and we would find people showing up in church on Sabbath after hearing those talks when they hadn't even been invited. And out of that, he wanted to produce a documentary series for a secular audience that would trace the history of Sabbath and show the conflicts and the heroes and the martyrs and where Sunday came from. And he laid that dream before the Lord and he began to work toward it and to travel to gather material for it. Traveled to Europe, traveled to the Middle East, traveled to China and other places in Asia collecting material. <clears throat> traveled to Alaska, he heard a story of a, of a Inupiat whom God had talked to and told him about the Sabbath, told him about the father and the elder brother and a beautiful city that was going to come down and a special fruit that you would eat in that city and taught him that the father had more power than the shamans that his people were subjected to. The shamans tried to kill him, but they said they couldn't because he was surrounded by a white light and his home was surrounded by a white light, and they couldn't get through to him. And this man told his people, every time you see my pole with a flag on it, that's the day you don't have to work. 
You can come and I'll talk to you about the Father and teach you. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? It just shows you how God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And where there is no missionary and no human voice can go, God sends dreams, or he sends a talking bird as he did to Manilik, the Eskimo. God is so good, isn't he? Jim was traveling to Alaska. He had enough mileage on his uh, travel bank to take our two oldest sons. Tony was 13, Joey was 11, and the dream of their lives was to go to Alaska. They wanted to see elk and go fishing and see polar bears and do all the things that kids would like to do in a place like that. They were outdoor kids. For 10 days, they stayed in the villages up in northern Alaska. They learned what life is like, that it's hard. They heard the stories. They interviewed the elders. It's an oral tradition, and stories are passed down from father to son. They interviewed different people to get the whole story. You know, it's a story of tremendous hope. People still believe that Manelik was a prophet and that his prophecies will yet come true. While they were up there, God put on my heart to pray, particularly for my boys, that he would put love in their heart as the motive for their choices. They'd been baptized. I wouldn't say that they were ready for translation, but I wanted them to make their decisions based on love. It's not enough to obey because your mom and dad tell you to. It's not enough to do good because the church has the rules. God is calling for the motive of love in our hearts for action. And that was my prayer for my boys. And you know, God has told us in Matthew 7 to ask. He said, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open unto you. And it says, what father, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will he give him a serpent? My boys probably would have loved to have a serpent. But I know that God heard my prayer because he promised if we ask for what's good, he's not going to give us a rock and that we are to ask him. They were scheduled to return home on a Monday, landing in L.A. because they had been able to get a cheap flight out of L.A. And one of our Helpers had driven down to L.A. to pick them up. I'm, I live in Northern California. He gave me a call mid-afternoon, and he said, they're not on the plane. And I was kind of shocked, because I thought, surely if they missed their flight, they would have called and let us know. I called up to Alaska, to our friends up there, and that's when I found out that the small plane they were flying in had not arrived in Anchorage the night before. They were, uh, it was Jim and our two sons and a young lady from New Zealand and the native pilot. Search and rescue was unable to go out because the weather was bad that day. But I knew in my heart that they were fine because Jim was working on the Sabbath project and God had given us so many evidences of his, of his intervention and of his guidance in it. It was a big project. Originally, Jim had prayed for $10,000 he said, I can finish this in six months. But you know how things go. They grow. They take on a life of their own. And there was more material and more information and more places to go. And ultimately, he was praying for a million dollars. And me, oh, me of little faith, faith was thinking, a million dollars? Why do we need a million dollars? But that was his prayer. And as he began to put material together, we could see that it was a huge project. 
He storyboarded it all before he had gone up to Alaska, almost 600 small frames telling the people and places, events, and the order it should go as he saw it. He hadn't written a script for it, and he had not filed his information. It was all in his head and in all the books he'd read. So his, his goal was that when he got back from Alaska, he would begin to write on it. I knew that God was going to finish that job. He was praying one day for money for the project. The phone rang as he was praying, and the voice on the other end said, I, hear, I heard about what you're doing, and I'd like to know what you would do with money if I gave you 10000 or 25000 or $50,000. And Jim said, I'll call you back. Called him back. The man sent $50,000. That was the beginning. And over and over again, God opened Iraq. It had been close to tourism. Jim was able to get into Iraq. China was close to tourism at that time. He told the travel agent, as soon as there's a way for me to get into China, book me a ticket. The agent called one day. He said, there's a tour. It's going across China to all the places that you want to go. So Jim said, book me. There were three other men that were going to go with him with equipment. The agent called one day. He said, by tomorrow, I need $1,400 to hold your place on that tour. We had no money. Jim was an artist. The next day, someone walked into the studio, someone we hadn't met before, but he'd heard, and Jim explained the project, and he left. He came back an hour later, and he pulled a roll of bills out of his pocket and counted off 20 $100 bills. He hopped in the car and went down to the travel agent. Jim peeled off the 1400 and then he said to the agent, I've got 600 left, shall I put this toward what's needed for the rest of the balance? And the agent said, no, when the time comes, you'll have it. See what God does? He uses our experiences to give faith to other people. And it was true. God took care of it. And on that trip, he had opportunity to share with people they wouldn't have had otherwise. Their guide was a young Chinese woman, and she made it plain right at the start that she was communist, and she heard that four of the people on the tour were Christians, and she made it plain, I don't want to hear anything about God. So Jim had with him a Christ Object Lessons book he was reading, and he said to her, name was Doe, he said, Doe, I'll help you with your English. Come sit with me on the bus or the train, and I'll help you with English. So she'd come sit with him, and he would tell her stories. He would tell her stories like the prodigal son, the sower sowing the seed. He would tell her some of the stories from the old true education readers, those heartening stories. Toward the end of the trip, she said to him, and when she'd come to sit with him, he'd put his Christ object lessons away. He'd say, you don't want to hear this book because it's a Christian book. Toward the end of the trip, she said to him, where do you hear these stories? They warm my heart. He said, well, a lot of them are in this book here. <laughs> she said, can I have your book? And he left it with her. And we know that God's word does not return void. We don't know what's happened, but, but God knows, and she had that book. So God had opened that door over and over again. God had provided ways and means, and I knew that God was going to accomplish his dream of a Sabbath documentary. There was no doubt, and I believe that he needed Jim to do it, and I knew that they were okay. And besides, my son had taken with him his How to Survive an Alaska book. So <clears throat> I had confidence. When I went to bed that night, I prayed and have you ever asked God to talk to you? Sometimes we need the voice of God, don't we? And very often, God has led me right to the verses that are what, what his word is to me. And I know it's him talking to me. 
And I went to bed that night, and I said, God, I don't know what's happening. I don't have any word. I believe that my family is fine, but please talk to me. And he took me to a verse in Job, 23, verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And I thought, man, why are you giving me that one? And I thought, well, it's probably because it's a trial to not know and to have to wait. And later I could thank God for that verse because, you know, he knows that we are but dust. And yet he's promised that he can make gold out of dust. God is amazing. The next day we waited and for news, and as we waited, my house filled up with friends who had heard, friends to wait with me. Early afternoon, I had a phone call from Search and Rescue, which was headed up by an Adventist pastor, and they said, we've located the plane, and we're sending a helicopter in, and that's all they would say. My brother's a pilot. He lived in Sacramento. I called him, and I said, they've they found the plane. He called them. He had been keeping in touch with them, and he called me back, and he said, I'm going to fly over and be with you when you get the news. So he flew over in his plane. My dad picked him up at the airport and brought him to the house. And my brother led me outside, and he and my dad closed their arms around me, and my brother said, there are no survivors. And my head was spinning, and I... I think that time stood still and I thought but there are survivors because I'm still here and my two younger children I don't know how long we were out there people say that you go through a stage of denial but there was no denial in me I knew it was true I went back in the house my son Andy was seven my daughter Adel was almost nine Andy ran across the room, and he just flung out these words, my daddy's dead, isn't he? And you know, as a parent, it's our, we, our job is to protect our children. We raise our children hoping that we can protect them from damage and get them to adulthood whole. And at that moment, I wanted more than anything to say no, but it wouldn't have made a difference because it was true. He climbed on my lap, and my daughter was on my lap, and I felt like we were this tiny spot of, of the most intense agony in this huge universe, you know, and where is God, and does he know, and does he know how much pain we're in right here, and how, how can we bear this? And at that moment, I felt a core of peace in me that I knew was not me, that God was right there, and he was keeping me in peace in the midst of the worst thing that could ever happen to me. My daughter looked at me and she said, Mom, I'm sure glad you're not the kind of person that blames God for everything. I thought, is my daughter feeling that presence too? And at the same time, my son is blaming God. We're all so different. And yet God knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our needs. And he's there to minister to us, whatever that is. And then Adel said, well, how about Tony and Joey? And I had to say them too. No, in that instant, our family was cut in half. And for my son especially, it was all the men in the family. It was his heroes, his mentors. It was the men who kept a lid on him because he was always a bit too much. It was like gravity was gone for him. 
I knew that God was there, and I knew that God was going to finish the work he had started. And I knew that God would do it with or without me. I wanted God to do it with me. I wanted to be a part of it. I don't have the gifts that my husband had. I'm not the artist and the creative person, and I don't, didn't have the capabilities. But another thing I learned is that God can do anything he wants with anyone he wants to do it with. Do you think that you don't have any gifts or abilities? Are you a one-talent person? It does not matter. God picks the least likely because he can be seen for who he is. There's a verse in Isaiah that I, I really love, or a, a few verses. It says Isaiah 41, verses 17 to 20. It says, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fails them for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I'll plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia tree, the myrtle, and the oil tree. I'll set in the desert the fir tree and the pine tree and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. It starts out with when the poor and needy are thirsty and need water. It, it ends up with, and God's going to do it in a way that you will see and know and consider and understand that he did it. God accomplishes his work in a way that we know who did it. Remember the story of Moses. He didn't want to go speak to Egypt. He said, I can't even talk. Don't ask me to do this. And God wanted him to do it. And God wanted him to do it in a way that everyone would know that it was God. My favorite author, Ellen White, says, God intended to accomplish the work in a manner that would pour contempt on human pride. If you know you can't do it, and God does it, you know that it's him. And that's exactly what God did with the Seventh-day series. It took me eight years of research and all the time I was praying that God would send someone who knew how to do it better than me and faster than me, and God didn't send anyone. I thought, I, I know how to research. I can do that. So during those eight years, I prayed for a producer, director who would know how to produce it and who would see the scope and the value of it. I prayed for someone who could write the script, because writing script is, a, is a, a, an ability that a person learns, and I didn't have that ability, and I prayed that God would send the right host. And for those eight years, he didn't send any of those things. At the end of eight years, I had a manuscript that was over 200 pages. It had over a thousand footnotes. Some of the footnotes had 10 sources. Every single footnote was, was filed in hard copy and in my computer so that it couldn't be lost. And I sent that out to a few people, and they said, this is way too long. This is too big. I wrote a book. About that time, someone, one of my friends said, have you talked to Jeff Wood? He's a producer. I said, no, he's such a busy guy. And they said, well, let me give part of the script to him. So he gave him, it was laid out in four parts. He gave him the first part. And I had a call and he said, I, I'm interested in this. Let's talk. 
So we met together, looked it over, and I told him, you know, there's all these other parts, here it is. And he said, well, would you be interested in having a scriptwriter come on board? And I'm like, absolutely, yes. He suggested his brother, Jim, would. So Jim came, we began to talk, and, and I asked Jeff, what, what do you think we're looking at in budget for this? He said, I think it's a million-dollar project. And I'm like, yes. And God did it. Ultimately, it was a $4 million project. At this point, it's been translated into 19 languages. There are four more in the works, and it's being used all over. And look what God did. And look what he chose to do it with, someone that couldn't do it. We, none of us, have any right to think that we can't do something for God. We have no right to think that we don't have abilities because God measures differently than we do. That's another thing I learned about God. He measures things differently than we do. Remember the widow with her, her two coins and how Jesus thought that she had given more than all of the rich people that were putting a lot of money in because she had given her all. Her heart went with her gift. That's what Ellen White says. The value was estimated not by the worth of the coin, but by the love to God and the interest in his work that had prompted the deed. It's the motive that gives character to our acts, stamping them with ignominy or high moral worth. Here's another one I love. Those who think they can do but little should improve every opportunity to do that little. It may be the smallest link in the longest chain. Separated from other influences, it may appear of very little worth. But in God's great chain of circumstances, it may be the link that connects the soul to heaven. You don't know what your little acts are doing. You don't know what your smile, your kind words, the card. You don't know what God does with those little things. And you know what makes them of great worth? It's the love of God in our heart that motivates those actions. Did you know that love is power? Love is power. Moral and intellectual strength are involved in this principle and cannot be separated from it. Whatever is done out of pure love, be it ever so little or contemptible in the sight of men, is wholly fruitful. For God measures more with how much love one works than the amount he does. Love is of God. That's from a Review and Herald article, May 11, 1886. Did you hear that? that whatever is done out of the motive of pure love is wholly fruitful? We might not see the fruit of it now. We might not know what God's doing with it. But you can believe this promise that if you've done it out of the motive of love, it's wholly fruitful. Those of you who have experienced great loss, and that's probably all of you, I heard a quotation one time that said, you should treat everyone you meet as though they suffer from great pain because they do. That is the human condition down here. We want to protect our children from it. We want to raise them without that pain. And yet, I've learned that it's, it's in the journey that we show who God is. It's not necessarily the arrival or the accomplishment or the growing up, or the reaching the goal, that's the most important part of this journey. 
You know, maybe it's in our falling down and stumbling and being wounded and damaged. You know, maybe it's in our, in our great need of Jesus that the story is really told of who he is. You know, not one of us grew to adulthood without pain and damage. And in this world, not one of our children will either, much as we wish to protect them. But it's in that pain, it's in those wounds that we find out how much we need God and that we find out how faithful and how good God is. We would not know if we didn't need him. You know, we hate to be in need. We are so self-sufficient. We don't want to need anything. And yet God, in his mercy, another thing I've learned, and in his love, allows us to be in great need. And it's in that need that we find out who he is and how faithful he is. How could we know otherwise? If we're so self-sufficient and we can accomplish, accomplish anything and everything by ourselves, we don't even need God. And I look at the millennial generation, and so many of them are in that position. Life is good. They have everything they need. They're successful financially. They don't realize that they need God. And I know that they will find out. They will suffer. And God, in his mercy, will allow them to be in need so that they can know how good he is. No. Paul, when he was a prisoner in Rome, said, The Lord can bring victory out of that which may seem to us discomfiture and defeat. When misfortune and calamity comes, we're ready to charge God with neglect or cruelty. We need to learn that chastisement is part of his plan and that under the rod of affliction, the Christian may sometimes do more for the master than when engaged in active service. That sounds really strange, doesn't it? that under the rod of affliction, you might be able to do more for God than you could in active service? Do you remember in the chapter um, on John the Baptist in the Desire of Ages, where she says that God's faithful servants are never laid aside. In sickness and in health, in life and in death, he uses them still. That God could use us in sickness, that God could even use us in death. Isn't that to his credit? of what an amazing God he is. And not only that, that he allows us those things, and sometimes not for our own chastisement. Sometimes our need or our trial is for the good of somebody else and a blessing for somebody else. We don't know. You know, we can never complain or question what it is that God is doing with us because we know that he's good. We know that he has good plans for us. We know that he uses anything and everything that happens to us. And we can know that no matter what it is, no matter how grievous, no matter how shattering, no matter how painful, God is able to use it for good, not only for us, but for someone else. When I think that God could take the loss of my family, the agony of that, and end up using it to encourage or bless someone else, I'm just overwhelmed and amazed at what God can do. Paul went on to say, seeing that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. Let's run with patience the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We're not alone in this. We're being watched. Not only 
by heavenly beings and not only by the universe, whatever is out there, but we're being watched by each other. You don't know what people see in you. You can be totally surprised by what someone has seen in an experience of yours or in a response of yours, something you were completely unaware of that God used to draw attention to himself. To his credit, he can do that. And I stand in awe of that because God is so good that he can take the worst thing and the most painful thing and use it for good. You know, as parents, that your, your children's agony and your children's troubles are yours. And having to see my children suffer the way they did to have lost their dad and their brothers was my pain as well. We, we went and memorized all the verses on the resurrection. My son felt so burdened and guilty, like somehow they must not like him. Or he even said, God, God doesn't even like me, because if God liked me, he wouldn't let that happen to me. And I think in his mind was the question, too, if God is really as loving as we say he is, and if he really loved me that much, he wouldn't have let it happen to me. Or if God is as strong as they say he is, he could have stopped it from happening, and he didn't. So those questions went around in my son's mind, and we prayed and read promises. And, um, you know, and I would have to say that my son probably still struggles with those things to this day. My daughter, for five years, she didn't want to think about it, but she couldn't help but think about it. And she'd think, I'm okay. And then at night, she'd cry herself to, th to sleep. And for her, when her dad was gone, it was like God was gone. You know, for children, their dad is the image of God. And she felt like she couldn't see God because her dad was gone. When she was 14, she made an adult commitment to God. And he, and he helped her through it. And he walked her through it. And I thank God that he can do such a thing. You know, he can lead us. My son still, still struggles. God's not done with him. God has given us promises. You know how often God talks to us when we need it. My children were young, and I was, um, I was agonizing over them. <laughs> I sat on the couch one night, put them to bed early and cried, and I said, God, look at my kids. They're hopeless. Look at me. I can't even save myself, much less my kids. What are we going to do? And he, he took me right to those verses in Isaiah 49, where he promises that he would take the captive away, that he would contend with him who contends with us and he would save our children. That's our God. After we finished the seventh-day series, we wanted to talk about what God is like in relation to death, the character of God. And we started by wanting to talk about hell and eternal torment. Do you realize that over 60% of Americans believe in eternal torment? Do you realize that most Christians, most of Islam, very large proportion of people in this world believe in eternal torment? And it's the devil's attempt to make God look like himself. We got to know Edward Fudge, and when we heard his story, we thought, it's a good way to talk about it. It's a sweet story, and God led him every step of the way through difficulties and trials and heartache to the place where he could see that the dead are really dead, and God is not such a God as to torment sinners endlessly in fire. Again, it was an act of God to produce the movie. We didn't have funding. We set it aside for a while, and I had a phone call one day, and the man on the other end, someone I had not met and still have not, he said, it was really a mistake for you to stop working on that project. Is there anything I can do to talk you into it? And I said, I have never stopped praying that God would provide, provide the means for us to do it. He said, well, I think I can get you some money. Three weeks later, there was an envelope on my desk with a half a million dollars in it. That was marching orders. That wasn't the whole budget, 
but that got us going, and step by step, God accomplished it. The film is showed in over 150 theaters and public venues, and it's being shown not just by Adventists, but by other people out there in other places. And the kind of responses we're getting are so encouraging. Do you know that many people have never even heard that there was another view of what happens to the lost? One of our actors came in um, the day before our shoot, and he dropped the script on the counter, and he said, the script has really impacted my life. And we said, what's your story? He said, well, I was raised Catholic. I left the church as a teenager. I came back to God as an adult and as a Protestant. But he said, I never even heard that there was another view of hell. One lady wrote a little note after watching the film. She said, you know, I was raised believing in eternal torment, but she says, even as a child, I couldn't understand how a God of love could do such a thing. And she says, you've confirmed my childhood beliefs, and I can hardly wait to tell my friends and family. We have a documentary in the works that will go along with the film, that'll go deeper into it and be able to take people through all of the scripture that has to do with it. We have more to say on the subject of death. We are so blessed and fortunate to know what God is really like. And we have an, uh, an obligation to share that with a world who is in ignorance of his character. This morning, I want to end just on the whole idea that God has told us to ask. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. You know, he said, make high demands on me. Ask me. And and do we? Are we afraid to ask God for things? Do we think that we're not worthy of it? Do we think that he's a stingy, punitive father and he wants to make us work for it? It's not true. He said to ask. Philippians 4 says he's well pleased, said to ask him, and Ellen White says he is well pleased when we make the highest demands upon him that they may glorify his name. You know, the bigger things he does for us, the more honor he gets. The more we ask of him, the greater opportunity we give him to show who he is. You have a dream? Ask him to accomplish it. You have children not in the faith? Ask him to save them. You need money for a project to honor him? Ask him for it. He's good, and he will give us what we ask for when it's an honor to his name. He doesn't always ask, answer us immediately, and he doesn't always answer us the way we hope he will, but he takes every opportunity to be seen and be, to be known and to be glorified for who he is. And you know, we're his hands down here. We're who he has to show the world who he is and to show the universe that he's exactly who he says he is. This morning, I'd like to take a few minutes for us to split up into groups of two or three and just have a little prayer. Ask God for those things on your heart. Give him an opportunity to re reveal himself to you and through you. We'll take just about four minutes for you to do that. Never is one repulsed who comes to him with a contrite heart. Not one sincere prayer is lost. Amid the anthems of the celestial choir, God hears the cries of the weakest human being. We pour out our heart's desires in our closets. We breathe a prayer as we walk by the way. And our words reach the throne of the universe. They may be inaudible to any human ear, but they cannot die away into silence nor can they be lost through the activities of business that are going on. 
Nothing can drown the soul's desire. It rises above the din of the street, above the confusion of the multitude, to the heavenly courts. It is God to whom we are speaking, and our prayer is heard. Father in heaven, thank you that you hear us. Thank you that you love us. We, we plead today for your Holy Spirit to be in us and to accomplish your work. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.